Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Are we live, Lauren? We're live, Dr. Cohen. We're, what are we live with, Lauren? Gross Anatomy podcast, where we explore the sights, smells, and sounds of medicine and how it pertains to pop culture, mo- meaning books, TV, movies, and the world around us. And podcasts. And we've discussed other podcasts. True. True. Yeah. And Good. who are you? I'm Lauren Taylor. And I'm Dr. Jason Cohen. And this week, we are joined by... You've, you're kind of like Oz to me a little bit right now. <laughs> We're joined by Dr. Abe Malkin, who's also, to me, this Oz-like character. Because, you know, you and I don't really know each other that well. We've met years ago, I think. Right. Um, and, and I've kind of watched you, and, and we've had kind of... We flirted a little bit about meeting and talking, and then, and now I'm seeing you on social media, living this amazing life. <laughs> that, or at least it looks like this amazing life. Yeah, and very, uh, carefully manicured. What's that? It's very carefully manicured to to look uh, look amazing. As as people, that's what Instagram is for. As one does with social media. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So. If you don't mind, you know, I run this pre-med program too. And, and often in the pre-med program, I kind of let the doctors, I, I ask the doctors about their journeys and stuff like that. So being that you and I don't know much about each other, do you mind if I, um, where you're from, you know, all, all that kind of stuff? Like what, what's your story? I, yeah. I'll give you the, 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 the quick background. I grew up in LA. Um, LA boy. Yeah. So I'm uh-huh. lucky to make my way back here, but I had uh, some years on the East Coast before coming back to LA. I, I went to undergrad in New York. You should back me up even more. Where'd you go to high school? Oh, I went to uh, a private school here called Eula. It's a small Eula, private- yeshiva boy. Very nice. Okay. Yes. Uh, and then I went to continue to, in, on to Yeshiva University, ah. New- uh, where I played basketball and kind of fell in love with New York City. You played uh, basketball at Yeshiva University? Yes, yeah. So it was Division Three. It was uh, one of the few schools that I actually got recruited to. So it's pretty exciting. Oh, wow. Did you, like a lot of um, Eula people, and I went to a school on the East Coast called Ramaz, very yeah. similar. Sure. Um, a lot of the kids I went to school with took a year off and went to Israel for the year. Did you do that? I did, yes. I went to uh, a Yeshiva called Or Yerushalayim. Oh, yeah, that one. Oh, what is I it? I remember Ramaz because I played against Ramaz a couple of times at the Yeshiva University basketball tournament. So, oh wow, they were a, a tough competitor. <laughs> yeah. You're much younger than I am, so I, I don't think. I, I mean, we know people in common out here, but I don't think. Uh, how old are you? I'm 37. Oh my God, I hate you. <laughs> I'm I'm 51 already. Got it. Okay. So I got a couple more years to catch up to you. Yeah. Like I, I probably know your parents, not, not, uh, not you so much. Maybe they're, they're a bit older than you though. I'm so I'm, you're in the middle between me and my parents. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So when I regret that I didn't do that year in Israel, I, I kind of, when I was in high school, I kind of said to myself, I know I'm going to be a doctor. Let me hurry. I don't want to waste any time. Da, 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 da. Was it? And, and, and I tell our pre-med students, all the time. I'm like, don't rush, take your time. Do you have any regrets one way or the other? Are you super thrilled you took that year off? Um, you know, it was a really interesting year to spend in Israel without really any 
guidelines or rules. And I, I don't, my only regret is I didn't travel more while I was there. I spent a lot of time like a good student, like I'm sure you were studying what they told me to study. And I wish I just traveled more and experienced more of the world. You didn't do, I know my, the, the places my friends went to, they went to either BMT. Was that around when you were there? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Or Hakotel. That was the other one. Right. I knew they did, you know, Israel weekend trips, like a lot of that stuff. Did you like all over the country? I think every program is different. Mine was more just like you sit in a room and study and do Judaic studies. And right. you know, I wish I'd traveled more. I wish I'd traveled to the rest of the Middle East. I, you know, yeah. there's so many things to see there. And I, you kind of have a f- blank check to do whatever you want. So that would be really great. And we didn't realize it at the time, right? Like, it's amazing. And then at the end of that year, I, so I went right to college. I went to Binghamton, upstate yep. SUNY Binghamton, upstate New York. I then, I did then go and meet my friends in Israel. So I spent like a week with them or a week and a half in their yeshiva with them, right. living on the floor. And then we traveled Europe. Did you do that? I did it for like, yeah, like a week afterwards. And that's where I kind of got the bug to travel. And I've traveled a lot ever since. Which so, is where I see you on, on social media, like all over the world. And I'm jealous and I hate you. <laughs> the life of someone without kids versus someone with kids. That, that's really the distinction. A little bit, a little bit. Um, we did three weeks. Where did you go when you did your Israel, your Europe thing? I went to Rome, Italy, Rome, Venice, Florence, Milan, Paris, and the south of France. Wow, so yeah. yeah. In two weeks. <laughs> right, and we ran around like idiots too. The problem right. when I went is my friends had all just finished in yeshiva and were right. now religious, uh, religious Jews, and we spent so much of the time worried about where are we going to be for Shabbat? You know, right. we had to have a place for Shabbat and we had to have kosher food. And, you know, we, when we were little kids, we're thinking, oh, we're going to travel Europe and have the greatest time. It turned out to be the get food and where to stay for Shabbat. When- I was in the same boat. I, I, this was the first time I'd ever been to Europe. And I, I, I can I'm sadly report that I didn't eat at a single restaurant other than kosher restaurants, which is... Oh. You don't get the same experience, but subsequent to that, I've obviously enjoyed Europe a lot more. <laughs> we actually did, we, we were willing to eat like uh, pizza and things like that. And right. we found the best people. Lauren, have you been to Rome, to Italy? I haven't. No, I haven't. I still remember the pizza in this place in Rome. It was like on a thin, long, kind of just thin, long. And you would just say how, how much you wanted. Sl- it was the best. I still just remember. I don't know if maybe it was because I was free. I, who knows? So where'd you go in New York then? So then I, I went to Yeshiva University and uh, played basketball there. Luckily, I got college credit from a year in Israel. So I was only actually in right. university for three years. And you played all three years ball? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, wow. Uh, I was basically, my schedule was wake up at, you know, 8 a.m., Jewish studies, then my regular classes, my pre-med classes, basketball practice at night, internship somewhere in between then in, in finance. And that was my life. While didn't I was they there. sometimes, did you ever get to play at Madison Square Garden? I didn't. Not, no, not my year. Uh, I knew some of the why you guys played at the Garden, right? They, they probably did back in the day because, you know, Hal, Johnny Halpert, the coach, has a lot of connections. But yeah. he, I was there sort of the end of his career. So I think he was kind of sundowning a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And then when you were in college, you knew you wanted to go be a doc? So my dad is a doctor. I did pre-med, but I had to do finance the entire time. Like that was what I really thought I wanted to do. Finance, business. 
yeah, so I was an economics major. When I graduated in 2005, all my friends were getting these amazing jobs at, you know, uh, you know, investment banks, accounting firms, whatnot. So, you know, how you probably had a gap year, like most people do after they finish medical school before, or after they finish undergrad before they go to medical school. I didn't. I wish I had. Did you do a gap year? Well, so a lot of guys were doing research or volunteer work or whatnot. I decided to apply to finance and I got a job at Goldman Sachs. So my gap year turned out to be three years and it was three years at investment bank. At Goldman? Yeah. So I was at Goldman. What years were you at Goldman? I was at Goldman from 2005 to 2007. And then- Jeff Fershleiser wasn't there then, was he? A guy named Jeff Fershleiser? It could have been. I was in the uh, foreign exchange group. There's fixed income and- Banking, trading, sales, you know, yeah. departments. <clears throat> and did you love it? You hated it? What? Uh, I loved it. it. I would have stayed there longer if I hadn't, the market hadn't turned in 2008. Like things were great. I was making good money, living as a bachelor in New York City at 23 years old. So, where were you? What street? I lived on the Upper West Side, 90th and Columbus for uh, two years and then in Murray Hill afterwards. <clears throat> nice, nice. So, and what kind of doctor was your dad? He's, he was a psychiatrist. Um, I didn't want to be a psychiatrist, but I just liked the idea of having a practice, being a, right. you know, a business, essentially. But, you know, finance was so tempting that I decided to take a job. And it, it ended up, it was great for a couple of years. And then, like I said, when the market changed, things definitely, my priorities changed a lot. So had the market not crashed, you'd still be a business guy? Probably. I, I don't think I would have been as successful as I am today in finance. It just... I, you know, there's two types of people that are really successful in finance, people that are great salespeople that can, you know, sell ice to an Eskimo or people that are really smart mathematicians who are really smart traders. I'm not, I'm really neither of those. I'm somewhere in between. And for guys like me, you want to, you know, finance can just eat you up. So as an analyst, it was great. It was fun. But I think working my way up the corporate ladder would have been a little more challenging. Did you get laid off or just things yeah. changed? So my whole department, actually, I worked in uh, leverage finance, which is uh, the, the department that was responsible for issuing high, high risky debt to companies who wanted to get bought out by private equity firms. Right. In 2008, during the speculation in the market, that entire industry dried up. So it, was, it went from being at a complete high in 2005, 2006, to then just going to zero in 2008. Shot down in May. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so then what I was I was deciding what to do. I, I actually took the MCAT again. I took the GMAT. I was like, should I go to business school? Should I go to medical school? And I found this program at Tufts. I was an MD MBA program in four years, and I said, this is perfect. I can get both degrees four years, and then figure out what I do what I want to do after. Did you need to actually take both the GMAT and the MCAT to get in? Yes. So you'd have to, you basically have to get accepted to both programs. Um, and you had to take both exams. It wasn't good, like, had you rocked the MCAT, that wouldn't have been good enough? You know, I, I can't remember now. I did take both anyway, because I was thinking about applying to business school separately and, and right. not going to medical school. So I had both. I can't remember if that was a requirement, if I just had both. Wow. Interesting. So you went, and how many years was it? So it's a four-year program. Most MD, MBA programs are five years. So you basically yeah. Years, two years of med school, you take a year off to your business school, you go back to med school, and then you kind of go back and forth. Our program, you actually started business school before med school, did it like a huge load of courses. Then throughout the four years, they kind of uh, interwe- intertwined business school classes, which from my perspective is a great way to do it because from day one, you're thinking like, how can I you know, inter- implement the business skills I'm learning into my medical practice 
into the, what I'm doing. We yeah. did a lot of consulting. We, we worked with venture capital firms. We did biotech due diligence. And the, the, the people that I met there in my cohort were, are now super successful and doing a lot of really cool things, which that was probably the best part of it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense that it started, that it starts as business school. Cause it's hard to take a break from the medicine thing. I always, that always confused me. I mean, it's nice. It's a break. Listen, you have, your first two years of med school can be a grind. So it's nice to take that year break, but you're, I'm like you, I wanted to get in and out as quickly as possible. And the four year option really, really made a lot of sense. Did some of the kids decide, Hey, I want to stay just med or some of the kids say, Hey, I just want to stay business. And did you Every see that? Year? Happen? Yeah, every year there, there was out of the you know ten or so people that were in our MD MBA cohort, usually one or two people just decide they don't want to practice medicine and just do business. They do venture capital, consulting, whatnot. I was one of those people actually, who was like dead set on not practicing. Um, most people tend to just go the traditional medical route, and you know maybe they use their MBA, maybe they don't, but it's not a big part of their practice. I was dead set on not practicing until my fourth year when my preceptor was like, "You got to get a residency or else." Wait, you were dead set on not practicing medicine? Yeah, I was going to do, I was gonna do uh, work for McKinsey, do healthcare consulting, um, maybe do like some kind of management of hospitals. But my preceptor said- Were there a lot of jobs? Are there a lot, a lot of yeah, jobs? Yeah. I mean, I, was, I interviewed at all the firms and you know, it was basically like, do I apply for residency or do I just go this route of, of, of taking a healthcare business job? Huh. You're a very attractive candidate as an MD MBA. You have like both the you know disciplines under your belt. Um, but he told me some good advice. He said, you know, unless you do residency, and I'm sure you can attest to this, you don't have a lot of clinical experience. What you learn in med school is so limited that no one's going to take your advice on any kind of clinical decision making in a business role unless you have some degree, you know, medical training. So I decided to do family medicine just because it was the shortest residency. And I said, all right, years. three years. Where'd you do that? So then I went to Kaiser from here in Woodland Hills. Um, I got really lucky because the program that I was in was just a very relaxed uh, program. I, mean, I, I certainly wasn't like one of those gunners who wanted to get the most difficult program possible. I wanted to just coast and have a really easy residency, which ultimately it was. And it was so enjoyable that I actually decided to practice. <laughs> wow. And like, wouldn't you like like what changed your mind? You just like seeing patients or like, I just said, you know, you go through med school and it's like this malignant, you know, everyone's just treating you like crap and you just have this like medicine and it's like, I don't want this the rest of my life. And then I went to Kaiser and it's like chill, relaxed. People are working nine to five. It's, you know, it doesn't consume your whole life. You can have a, have a life outside of medicine. And I'm like, Oh, this could actually work. The other thing that changed my mind was that, I um I started doing moonlighting for a concierge doctor doing house calls. Yeah, and I was like, this, yeah in LA. Yeah. If you know Michael Farzam, he's he's a house car house call yeah. doctor in Los Angeles. And I was like, this is the greatest job ever. You you have a black doctor bag, you get in your car, you go to see a celebrity, you go to see some guy in this huge mansion, he pays you cash, mm-hmm. and you're done. And it's like, you right. know, write me a Z pack, fill my, you know, give me a shot of Toradol for my low back pain. I'm like, I could do this and I could get the customers because I know how to run a business. So that's kind of what changed my mind. So you never thought um, I'm going to stay at Kaiser. So that was a big decision because, you know, Kaiser is golden handcuffs. They give you a pension, they give you a good salary, but I, but I started to see the money that I was making even as a moonlight moonlighting doctor on the side. 
And it was like getting close to what I would make at Kaiser, even on my nights and weekends as a resident. And I'm like, I can make way more than that on my own if I don't take a job with them. And sure enough, that's what I did. So right out of uh, residency, what did you do? So I, ha- I started my practice. Right. Um, put up a website, Concierge MDLA. I started to get leads. How many years ago? Uh, this was 2016, so five years ago. Probably when I met you, right? You moved. Yeah, moved, yeah, yeah, right. When you met me. And and I should I should add one important thing to the story here, which was that my medical school roommate and I were both in the MD MBA program. He had a tech background. He had built you know web business before, and I had a business background. And we had started a company in medical school. This is going to sound funny, but called Birthday Bottle Service, where it was basically an open table like platform, but for nightlife. So in my years of living in New York, I met all these bar owners and club owners and made all these connections. And I had this flourishing promoting business of booking tables for people. The reason I bring up the story is because- You were doing that in med school? Yeah, I would go down to New York every weekend and kind of set up my my parties. I was doing 30, 40 parties a weekend all over the city. And it taught, and this was together with my, my roommate in med school, he would do all the digital marketing. I would handle the front end of it. And it taught us how to run a business, how to get customers, how to service customers, you know, all that kind of stuff. So then when I wanted to start my practice, I partnered again with my, my, my old roommate saying like, you know how to acquire customers online. I know how to do the, the business. And sure enough, that's how the business got started quickly. For most people who don't have that background, it would be probably challenging to just right out of residency, start your own practice. But I had oh, a little he's your partner. He's my partner in that. And then shortly after we started another brand called Drip Hydration, which was just a focused on IV therapy. So it was mobile IV therapy, you know, all, now it's all over the country, but at the time it was just in Los Angeles. And is he working as a doctor too, or you're really doing the doctoring? Yeah, he's a full-time dermatologist. He lives in Boston and uh, he only works two or three days a week. And the rest of the week, he kind of handles the business aspects of growing each of these businesses. Holy cow. Yeah. yeah I'm, have you ever had time for fun? It just sounds like you work all the time, but that's very impressive. No, I have a guiding principle. I really never, I, I, I don't ever take a task on that I have to do myself. I mean, obviously when I first started, I had to, but like, for example, if I want to start a, like I'm working on a home detox business now where like I, I we can skip ahead. I, I got a board certified in addiction medicine. I do that, a lot of that as well now, but I have a home detox practice and I set up the business so that nurse practitioners see the patient's. Uh, we have an admissions person who handles the admissions. We have a marketing team. I personally don't have to do any. I set it up. I'm good at putting the right people in place. And that's kind of how I handle most things these days is, you know, people need to be directed. They need guidance. They need leadership. And if you can ha- offer that, you actually don't have to do a lot of the work yourself. So that's kind of how I live my life these days, which is why Jason sees me traveling a lot. <laughs> I think, I think, I think I I want to watch like, the whole time. TED Talk of you just talking. I don't understand how you did any of it. I'm understanding how you did this, but it's just so impressive. And you're 37 years old. So, so I think people want to be like, people need some inspiration. They need leadership. They need guidance and people love feeling uh, empowered to do things. So if you give people a playbook that they can follow and empower them to build a business themselves, essentially, or build their role within the business, that's golden. And that's been my, my, my strength is that I can find people that are good at something and say, Hey, I can help you utilize those tools to really drive a business forward. And even if they're not making a, t- you know, my fi- cause financial compensation is really one aspect of, 
of fulfillment. I think fulfillment for people is really finding what you're good at and like doing a good, good job of it. So, you know, you can obviously motivate people financially, but you can motivate them even more by saying, Hey, you're a really good operations person. Like let's grow this business together rather than like, you're just a cog in the wheel and you know, you're going to punch a clock every day. Did you learn this all in business school or you think uh, like, had you not gotten the MBA, you think you would have known how to do all this stuff? Uh, actually the most influential person in business for me was someone who ran. So when I was running that promoting business, he had started a promoting business before me. He's a few years older than me. And I would basically send him all my, I, I would just go to the marketing. I would send him all the reservations. He would book them with the, the clubs and whatnot. He really taught me the value of, you know, finding just good people. Like I, for him was a lead generator. You know, he was setting up venue relationships and I would generate the leads. And he said in any business, a business is just simply customer acquisition. How do you get the customers and how do you keep those customers? And whatever your cost of acquiring a customer is, as long as your lifetime value of the customer is more than that cost to acquire, if you figure out that formula, then you can just pour fuel on the fire and grow and grow and grow and grow. That business was a service business. What I'm doing now is a little more complicated. It's, it's medical. There's other factors involved. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing. And that's how I approach it. It's like, if I can find a way to get customers, keep them happy, keep them as long-term customers, that's, you know, any business will flourish. That guy has since gone on to selling a cleaning company, a painting company, and now building like a national alcohol addiction brand. So wow. he, he was sort of my, my, my inspiration. Do you feel like he was your mentor as well? I mean, he, he probably doesn't know he was my mentor because I never really talked to him about it, but I kind of followed in his footsteps and really took a lot of guidance from him. Do you feel like you've had mentors? Yeah. My, the one mentor that was most impactful in my life, other than this other guy, was uh, my general surgery preceptor, and which is why the one who actually convinced me to do a, a residency, you know, he, he, was vi- he also was like similar in the sense that he wasn't malignant. He was just a nice person. And he's like... Yeah. Like medicine doesn't have to be a grind and, you know, consume your life and make you feel like crap. He's like, you can have a nice life being a doctor. You know, you should at least explore that and not, you know, feel like the only experience you have in medicine is just being beaten up by residents all day. So that was really important. And then since then, we've we've kind of kept in touch over the years. What's he doing? He's the head of cardiothoracic surgery at a hospital in in Boston. Cool. Super impressive guy. Like one of the most humble down to earth, easygoing people I've ever met and obviously made a huge impact in my life. So I see you in addition to the fact that I see you vacationing all over the place. <laughs> I also see you going around, you know, COVID testing a ton of people. And so are you going around the country doing that now? It's, it almost seems like you are. So, um, I'm only testing here in LA and I only test people that are influential. So if it's, if there's a reason for me to test them, I'll go to, I'll test them either here at my house or at their house. I don't typically do day-to-day testing for, for the general public. Um, but we do have locations now all over the country and the way we've set it up is it's a licensing model. So we have a brand which people can license and then we give them the playbook then to then grow their own business essentially. So whether it's Dallas or Austin or Boston or, you know, Denver, these are all, independent business owners who've now licensed our brand and are growing a business and COVID testing, COVID testing, IVs, all mobile medical services. And, you know, to my point earlier, if you take a nurse who has worked in a hospital, taking orders from a doctor all day long, and you're like, Hey, you can now run your own business and you be the boss. 
they are so empowered to grow that business, you know, and we can just give them the tools to do that. So most of the people I work with are people who, who just have never had the opportunity to run a business before. We give them the tools and they, they, they're off and, off and running. Did, did these people find you or you find them? We're a little bit of both at this point. We get a lot of incoming requests for licensing. You know, we do a pretty good job with branding and social media. So we're out there and people see us in the public. So we do get a lot of incoming requests. But occasionally when I want to go after a city, I'll try to find people in that city who I can work with. Um, so we do a little combination of both. You have stuff going on in New York? Yeah. Luckily, my one of my close high school friends lives in New York. He's a PA and he set up the business uh, in 2017 and, you know, it was slow growing for a little while, but then this year with COVID he's, his business exploded and he's testing all over the state, all over the city. He expanded to New Jersey, he's expanding to the rest of the tri-state area. Um, and we, we started off, you know, with house calls through concierge MD and IVs through drip, but really we're trying to build as a full mobile medical platform. So whether it's house calls, IVs, COVID tests, vaccines, lab draws, Whatever you need you would go to an urgent care for, we want to deliver it to you at home. Are we doing too many COVID tests? Uh, not if it allows us to travel. You know, I get a lot of uh, crap from people on Instagram saying, oh, why are you traveling? How can you do this so irresponsible? And I tell them, like, I believe in testing. I get tested almost every single day and I'm negative. So, you know, if, if that's what it takes for me to live a normal life, then I, you know, implore everyone else to do it too. Are you vaccinated? I haven't gone vaccinated yet, but I probably will when it becomes a little bit less tricky to navigate it. Right, right. I almost think people are using COVID testing. Like I I see, I have a daughter who's 24 and I see my daughter and her friends. Anytime they have like a little sniffle, they feel like they have to get COVID tested. And as long as they're COVID negative, they go back to their irresponsible behavior, spreading their sniffle around. Right. So, so I think it's, do you think it's kind of being misused a little or? I think, you know, there's definitely some room for abuse for sure. But yeah. I, me, I would rather, we're going to have to learn to live with COVID eventually. So, right. you know, if, if we over test a little bit and then that makes people feel more comfortable to go out in the world and, and live their lives, like that's fine to me. I'd rather that than people being so afraid to go out and live their life that we can't function as a society. Do you think that this COVID testing thing is going to continue for a while? You think it's going to, yeah, I mean, I think it will, it will continue the same way flu testing is. I mean, I still do flu tests for people. Well, not really these days anymore, but pre COVID I would do, you know, during the winter, you know, a certain handful of flu tests every year. And I think COVID will stay the same. So what's the craziest concierge story? You don't have to tell us who it was, but what's the craziest concierge thing you've done? Um, I, I got asked to go to Switzerland to pick up a former, very famous rock star who was in his 60s now, who was there in a detox center and was very uncomfortable. So his agent said, I need you to go in like two hours. So he said, the private jet's waiting for you at the airport get on the private jet, fly to Switzerland, pick him up, bring him back and detox him. And it was like a 20 hour journey or 10 hours there, picked him up, brought him back, detoxed him, the whole thing on the private jet. So the way there was amazing because I was chilling, enjoying myself. The way back kind of sucked, but yeah, it was a pretty cool experience. Huh. Are you in touch with that person? That person uh, unfortunately passed away, but not because of anything. Um, he, had, he had a history of cancer. So oh, Wow. 
So I wanted yeah. to ask you about that. How do you become a board certified addiction in addiction medicine? Like what There's is two ways. One is to do a, fellow, a fellowship like most people do after you finish residency in addiction medicine. But because so many people practicing addiction medicine actually never did a fellowship, they just started practicing years ago. They actually grandfathered in a lot of people who had been practicing by just taking a board exam. So I luckily got into that, fell into that category and I was able to just take a board exam after practicing for two years. So addiction medicine is, it was an unlikely thing for me to do. I had no experience with it, but a lot of my concierge patients had addiction problems. As you can imagine, people that want a concierge doctor, some of them have alcohol problems or other issues, pill uh, addictions, whatnot. So I started doing it and I realized like, this is actually a huge, there's a huge market there for people that need addiction services. Is that part of your, do you bring it up with all your patients, even if they don't mention it? I mean, I'm very careful with controlled substances. You know, I really don't prescribe. No, I don't mean that. I mean, if you're taking care of someone and you know, you know, and taking the history, oh yeah, I take Vicodin every day for my back pain. Do you bring it up and say, hey, we got to do something about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely suss it out and people who don't, uh, don't think they often don't think they have an issue tend to, you know, especially those who are high achievers, you know, celebrities, athletes, executives, yeah. it's obviously a difficult conversation, but it's something that I do weave into to my assessments. Because so many doctors, I mean, so many patients are on something or, or drinking right. a ton every night. And I, and I think it's, it's almost like, Oh, I, because the patients will come to me as a specialist having an internist who prescribes them this. And it always shocks me that, that they're maintained on these medicines and it's not addressed. Do you make it part of your practice now? Yeah. And, and, and actually I kind of take it a step further because typically what I do in my practice is I try to make people feel good physically. And by do, and what I mean by that is I have patients that are 30 to, to 80 and, you know, I try to get them on a healthy regimen from the beginning using things like IV therapy, NAD therapy, peptides, stem cells, more non-traditional types of treatments that will relieve, relieve them of their reliance on pills or other things. So if you feel like crap all day because your testosterone's in the dumps and you're taking things to make yourself feel better, well, I could just replete your testosterone. You'd probably feel a lot better that way. Or you have a ton of anxiety because you, uh, for whatever reason, I can give you an NAD IV that repletes your neurotransmitters, you probably be less reliant on benzos. So I really try to deal with things in a lot more holistic and kind of natural way. Do you see your practice going more that way or, or not necessarily? Yeah, yeah I don't, I, I really almost primarily do uh, anti-aging, regenerative, you know, non-traditional medicine and, and, and addiction medicine. I, I don't really take care of a lot of kind of geriatric elderly patients with complex medical issues. It's more kind of wellness. How can I get people to live a full life, optimize their health? So clearly you're on social media. How is that? Do you get any hate? Do you get any negativity? Do you, or do you, you know, one thing Lauren and I always joke around about, or I joke around about is in order to be really successful on social media, you have to be in a bikini basically, you know, (laughs) and, or dance. You either have to dance or you have to, you know, showing a ton of skin. So mm-hmm. I've noticed, you know, I, I must confess, I, I do check out your Instagram. I've noticed you've been in some bathing suit shots and things like that. Yeah. What do you, do you have a recipe? Do you have, do you get hate? Do you only get love? Yeah. So I, you know, for, for a while I tried to do an Instagram about with a lot of doctors photos and, 
it just felt very disingenuous, you know, like I, I'm not the kind of person that's going to lecture you about not traveling or getting a, a, you know, flu shot. Like that's just not who I am. I'm going right. to be, who I am. so I stopped doing that. I started to just portray what my life is actually like rather than being like a holier than thou goody two shoes. Right. And I think that I, I generally don't get a lot of negativity. Occasionally people will say stuff, but for the most what part, kind of, tell me the worst negativity you got. Like someone said the other day, you should lose your medical license. You travel so much, you know, it's terrible. But, and I, and I responded back to him. I said, you know, listen, I get tested a lot. I haven't gotten COVID. The people who I'm with have, have either had COVID or, or have had vaccinations or whatnot. And I try to respond to people reasonably rather than, you know, fighting back just for the and sake of the person that. respond back. Yeah, they, they usually they do. But it, after a few exchanges, it kind of died down, but it was, I just responded back. I like, I don't shy away from the way that I live. Like I don't, I'm not apologetic. Do you convert them over though to like apologize and, and understand or not really? It's hard on, it's hard on social media, especially when there's anonymity and people just want to say whatever they want to say. But I think in my own personal circles, I've definitely been an advocate for people living their lives and not, you know, living in a closed room during COVID. And I think people have kind of become more receptive to that. There was that whole thing on Instagram about some female doctor being posing in a bathing suit, right? Do you remember that? No, I don't know which one was that. I don't know, but it, it, it like spawned a lot. It spawned like even an article about how women shouldn't be, you know, very bizarre, you know, old fashioned man, obviously a man wrote this article about, you know, it's not okay. And then the, you know, the backlash from it was, um, all these women doctors posing in bathing suits and stuff, you know, to give solidarity, which I think is great. Like, why shouldn't we, you know, Lauren and I, when we first started this podcast, a big concern of hers was she didn't want to hurt my, you know, cause I'm silly. I'm a little goofy. I'm a little silly. And she, her concern was she didn't want to hurt my reputation as a doctor. And, and in the beginning we were much more cautious, you know, since we've been doing this now, I, I've gotten a little, bit more relaxed, but it's always, you know, are we allowed to be people or do we always have to be the doctor? You're I mean, definitely a person and I'm jealous. Yeah, well, it comes with my job. I mean, I'm a young concierge doctor. My patients are generally young like me and I have a very casual relationship with them. They have my cell phone number. They text me. They follow me on social media. I'm used to just being on a level playing field. There's really no hierarchy in concierge medicine versus when you work at a hospital, you come in, you wear your white coat, the person sitting on the chair, you know, he's coming to you and yours. So you feel much more of that uh, patriarchal relationship. It, it's not like that in my practice. Yeah. And when you travel to these, so I've seen you in Mexico, all over, are you doing medicine at, are you kind of trying to do like, go make it a work trip so that you could kind of like, are you, Oh, someone wants me to go there. I'll go take care of them. And then I'll go have some fun too. Is that. You make them work just, but not for direct patient care. I set up new drip, drip hydration locations or concerts and B locations. You know, that you is set up a location in Tulum when you were there. Yeah. So we have a partnership with a nurse there uh, in Tulum. Uh, we haven't gone live yet, but she'll be doing IV therapy for us. We set up a partnership in Cabo, a couple of places I've traveled recently, obviously Miami and some of the other places too. That's great. So how often are you, are it really does seem at least on your social media, it seems like you're barely in LA. Is that, I I find a lot of, uh, it's like a release for me. I can work super hard during the week and then go away on the weekend. So if it was up to me, I would work Monday through Friday and go away every single weekend, you know, not always feasible, but 
for the most part, it helps me work a lot harder during the week. Do you love LA still? I do. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of sad what's happened to LA over the last year, but I'm sure it'll bounce back when things open up. You don't want to move to Miami like a, a lot of us? Miami is too much for me. No, it's too crazy. I, I like the mountains. I like being able to get away to the beach, but not, not Miami. It's too much. My wife is like, we got to move to Miami. <laughs> uh, listen, it's, it's, it's a nice place to live. I, it's beautiful when you drive around, you get the ocean and tall buildings and all the glamour, but I think you get, that gets old after a while. Yeah. So what's, so your, what's your next, do you have a next venture planned? Yeah, um, I'm working on a direct-to-consumer product for health. So think about you know Dollar Shave Club or something where you get a box in the mail every month. Um, I'd like to create something where you get a box in the mail every month of customized either prescription strength medications or um, supplements that adjust over time as you age to, to adjust to what you need. And we'll get a full profile on you at the beginning of the uh, when you sign up and then adjust every month what you get. Um, it's called realize health. It's going to basically realize your potential whatnot. Um, but it doesn't involve nurses. It doesn't involve any medical in, in-person medical visits. It's all remote. So you sign up online, we can do blood work. Uh, we analyze your blood works, prescribe a certain the blood work. So that, that, I mean, yeah, that part we can either, well, we could just send a prescription to quest or lab corp and have you do it there. Right. Uh, but we don't have to go in person, evaluate you. So it makes it takes away a lot of the friction of what people typically don't like to go to the doctor or even have some doctor come to them. It can all be done online, essentially. Wow. Yeah, we're not, we're not going to be curing cancer, but we will be helping people re- replace their t- testosterone or helping them get NAD so they can help improve their cognition and their memory. So it's more of an adjunct kind of wellness practice. Hmm. How much do you focus with your patients on, although a lot of your patients are young and healthy, but... How much do you incorporate movement, exercise, and stuff like that? You know, I, I, I have a trainer that I work with closely for my patients. So I try to have every single patient at least have one session with him. And whether they stay on with him or they just get some tools, it's really helpful for them. That's awesome. There are a ton of concierge doctors. How do you, how do you compete or do you not really need to? Well, I think people gravitate toward me, A, because just like you said, I'm pretty approachable, uh, you know, how I present myself online. And then also I have a really strong, uh, predilection toward anti-aging regenerative medicine. So people that people that are very, very sick and need, you know, Dr. House to take care of them. That's not me. I'm more the person you go to if you're you want to optimize your health. You want to start doing things now to make sure that in 20 years from now, you're going to stay healthy. That that's the basis of my practice. That's cool. We, uh, I have a good friend, um, Mark Feuerstein, sure. who's an actor who played a concierge doc uh, on a TV show called Royal Pains. He was one yeah. of our early guests uh, oh, wow. on this show, you know, talking about what you do. Sure. It's funny. I watched a few episodes of that because I was like, oh, maybe this is similar to what I do. And I'm like, this guy is doing real medicine out in the field. Right. I, I, I wish I was able to say that I do that, but that's, yeah, that's not, not, not realistic to my practice. Have you had any, you know, the story of, you know, is there a doctor on the plane or, or any, have you ever had to do anything? Funny, I, I, there, I was on a flight one time, I think it was to Costa Rica and they asked that and I, you know, waited a couple minutes because I was a resident. I was like, oh, what if it's something really serious? I'm a resident. I don't know. So I waited a few minutes and then I went to the back and there was already a nurse there and she had already started an IV. And I realized I'm like, 
they should ask, is there a nurse on the plane? Not as a doctor. <laughs> yeah. What am I going to do? Put an order in the EMR? Like, I, you know. <laughs> I know, it's true. When, when, if ever that happens and I'm with my wife, I'm, my wife is always like, yeah, I'll go. And I'm like, yeah, you go. Because <laughs> she, she's a nurse and she knows what to do. Exactly. They have a lot more hands-on skills. For sure. For sure. What else? Lauren? No, I think you answered most of my questions. I was wondering, though, about the uh, addiction. I read because of the pandemic, it's just um, addiction is rising. Uh, and that yeah. A lot of rehab centers like weren't open um, to help people. Were you experiencing any of that? So, well, there's two twofold. Addiction has certainly crept up during COVID just because of isolation, depression, and other boredom. Um, treatment centers, residential treatment centers have had a hard time just because obviously there's a lot of people living in close proximity. So they've had to, at, at, at the initial outset, they had to shut down. But then even now, it's still difficult to, to operate under COVID restrictions. Um, that's why, you know, there's telemedicine tools for people. There's uh, I, I the home detox actually became very popular, but now it seems like things are you know back up and running again. So people have plenty of options. You know, one of the things about our podcast is uh, uh, the whole pop culture and stuff. So just before we sign off two two questions, sure. one, give us a, do you have any kind of gross, yucky, disgusting story for gross anatomy? And then two, is what movies, TV, book, podcast do you watch or are interested in these days? Those are two. I'll answer the second and first just because I have to think of the first one. But uh, I just started watching Your Honor, which is with Brian Cranston. It's it's essentially like almost like a Breaking Bad esque type of show. Yeah. It's fantastic. I don't know why more people aren't watching it. Um, that's great. It's great. I highly. Okay. Because I watched the trailer and it didn't seem that good. So maybe that's why people aren't watching it. So I'm going to watch it now. So good. Yeah. It's like, you know, he has this like double life he's leading sort of or in the story, in the movie, in the book. And he's so good at that, you know, kind of suspicious, but seems like a really straightforward guy. And it's great. It's a book or you're you're reading the book or you're watching the show show on Showtime. Oh, got it. Isn't it that like he's a judge, but his kid commits some crime and he's got to protect the kid kind of thing? So everyone thinks he's this, you know, super upstanding citizen and great guy, but he's got this whole thing going on in the background that he has to protect. Kind of, kind of like Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We gotta watch that. I gotta watch that. It looks like he's amazing. I love it. Yeah. And then any kind of good growth story, either um, in the olden days of med school or current. I don't have a good growth story, but I, I have a funny story. I, one of my friends is a surgeon. He's a head and neck surgeon, and I remember when I was in residency, I got used to get so excited. I was like do you know what I did? Like what procedure I did? I was like, do you realize I took out a toenail today? And meanwhile, he's like dissecting nerves and like the behind the, the ears and stuff. And I'm like, he was like, yeah, cool. That's awesome. So that, that was, which was pretty gross, honestly, to me taking out toenails, but. Uh, exactly. Was there a pus in the toenail or just. Probably not even probably just like a basic ingrown toenail. Nothing else. <laughs> that was your highlight, eh? That was my highlight of my, that was the most I've gotten my hands dirty in my career. That nice. That's okay. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to gross anatomy and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. So you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.